afternoon and welcome to the 202nd of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we continue the congressional COVID calls with my guest, Pennsylvania Senator Bob Casey. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As of today, January 14th, 2021, there are 1,985,836 deaths globally from COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 23,194,318 cases in the United States. There are 386,577 deaths reported from COVID-19 in the United States. That's up from 383,113 reported yesterday, and 18,749 of those deaths have been in the state of Pennsylvania. At this point, I would usually read an obituary. Today, we're going to get right to the interview, and I'll read three obituaries from Pennsylvania COVID victims in the second half of COVID calls today. But I want to get right into the discussion with my guest, Senator Bob Casey. Let me just very briefly introduce him to you. United States Senator Bob Casey fights every day for Pennsylvania families. He's a strong advocate for policies that improve the health care and early learning of children and policies that will raise wages for the middle class. Senator Casey serves on four committees, including the Senate Finance Committee and Senate Health Committee. He's also the highest ranking Democrat on the Special Committee on Aging, where his agenda is focused on policies that support seniors and individuals with disabilities. Senator Casey and his wife, Teresa, live in Scranton and have four adult daughters. Senator Bob Casey, welcome to COVID Calls. Thanks for your time today, sir. Doctor, great to be with you. Thank you. I'd like to start the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation is like there today. I'm in uh, Lackawanna County in Scranton. And uh, like a lot of communities in our state, the, the uh, case numbers have been high. We seem to be leveling off a little bit, but it's been particularly high these last couple of months, uh, as it has been throughout the Commonwealth. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit, just as we start out, about your experience of January 6th. I mean, we, we seem to be making history almost every day in this pandemic. Um, January 6th was quite a day. Can you talk to us a little bit about it? Yeah, I was in the Senate chamber when um, the disturbance uh, surfaced, and I, of course, um, being the optimist that I am, never thought that it would reach the point that it did. Um, when I I knew there was something wrong, when the vice president, Vice President Pence, who is in, in in the Senate, his role is president. He's called president of the Senate, mm -hmm. and he presides uh, not all the time. It's rare, but on occasions where there's something substantial uh, that's going to transpire, like the the uh, determination of electoral votes. But as uh, Senator Lankford from Oklahoma was speaking, uh, you could see uh, a security official go to the rostrum and, and ask Vice President Pence to leave, kind of pulling him off the, the uh, 
away from the, the uh, presiding officer's chair. And he then had to be replaced by Senator Grassley, who's the president pro tempore. But when that happened, I knew something was wrong. And you could hear a little bit of noise, but not much. Mm. We couldn't hear gunfire or windows breaking or the like. But then within a matter of minutes, the Capitol Police uh, kind of stopped the proceedings and, and urged us to stay away from the doors, stay at our desk, and they would lock down the chamber. By, but in the, over the next, say, 20 minutes, the chamber was flooded with staff and Capitol Police and Secret Service, other personnel. So now a chamber that had a little more than 100 uh, now was probably had probably had 200 people. I thought we would be there for a period of time and the disturbance would be quelled and we'd go back to work. But uh, it wasn't soon after that uh, that we were rushed out of the chamber. By this time, uh, about 200 people going through just one door because all the other doors mm -hmm. were locked mm -hmm. and secured. Mm -hmm. What right. I didn't know at the time, and I found out much later, like a lot of Americans, is that they were very close, the you know, very close from the chamber. Some coming to apparently take hostages, and uh, and maybe trying to kill the vice president, uh, if not kill others. So it was only afterwards that I realized the gravity of it, and it was just a terrible day for the Capitol and the people that work there, but really bad day for our country and for democracy. And there has to be, there must be, full accountability for this. Well, what do you expect to happen next? I mean, you've already voted to impeach this president once. Is is that where this is headed in the Senate? And when do you expect it to happen? Well, we don't know exactly precisely when the, the uh, Senate trial will start, but we know this. Uh, the law requires that we have a trial. Once you have, uh, once you have articles of impeachment that are delivered to the Senate, that, that compels us to have a trial. Uh, I don't think it should take that long, maybe two. I hope it'll only be two days, probably three. Mm -hmm. But uh, we would have to come to a determination in the Senate. Uh, now that he has been impeached, we'd have to come to a determination about conviction or not based upon the uh, based upon the evidence. I think the evidence already on the public record is substantial. You don't have to unearth a lot of new documents uh, to um, to make the case. But that that process will. Uh, potentially go beyond his term. Uh, so the question of removal will, would be moot, but the question of conviction would still be uh, a determination by the Senate. And one of the questions uh, that's been asked a lot, and I'd like to get your perspective on it, with so much work for Congress to do in the new Congress and the new administration to fight this pandemic, any concern that there's a Trump hangover with this uh, trial that has to, as you say, has to happen and these votes that have to happen? Um, how will the Senate be able to do both of those things? Well, there's no question there'll be a hangover, but I think there's going to be a hangover from this president on a lot of fronts. Um, he um, operated every day by one rule, divide. That was his, he literally believed that was in his best political interest to keep the country divided and hostile. And uh, he was very effective at keeping the country divided. So, uh, no matter what, uh, no matter what we do, there'll there'll be somewhat of a of a hangover. But I do think people begin to turn the page. It may may be difficult to turn the page, maybe in the first few days if there is a trial. But we've got to do both. We've got to transact business in the morning, meaning uh, trying to get confirmations done of cabinet officials and leading major agencies, and we have to do a lot of work to prepare for a COVID-19 and economic relief bill. Uh, 
uh, and we have to conduct a trial. So the, the, the trial part of that, the, the impeachment trial part of that would proceed in the afternoons and well into the evening. And I hope, I hope that we could, and there's no guarantee of this yet, but I hope we could uh, have this play out, say Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and maybe by the next week, uh, concentrate on the new, um, the new administration's work and the work we have ahead of us. I want to talk just a little bit more about the year that we've had. And, and a question that's been very much on my mind is the connection between the pandemic and all of the tension and violence, in many cases unexpected, pushback in this country to public health measures. It's been a very rough year. It was a very rough year. What connection do you see between the pandemic and the violence that happened at the Capitol on January 6th. I, I'm sort of fascinated to find out because it's very hard to differentiate the violence of this past year. It's hard to pull this pandemic away from the politics. I'm curious to know your, the way you see those connections. Well, both, both the, the pandemic and the attack on the Capitol, both have their origins in uh, the president's uh, conduct, the president's actions, uh, and his ability to, or his focus on obsession, really, with dividing Americans. Uh, there's no question that, that his, in my judgment, his words and actions incited the mob that came to the Capitol. Uh, it's hard to comprehend how powerful his voice is with certain Americans, but I think that was most evident when you had people, people storming the Capitol, uh, not only intending to to kill or capture or injure members of Congress. But uh, they said over and over again when they arrived, at least a big, a large group of them, uh, three words, hang Mike Pence. Uh, if a president, a uh, Republican president, can uh, so incite a crowd to commit or try to commit an act of murder against his governing partner, a, conserv a fellow uh, Republican, a conservative Republican, uh, you know the power and the the uh, toxicity that he brings to, and has brought to our um, to our, our dialogue in in America. So, the the same is true, uh, unfortunately, with regard to the virus. Think think of where we would be now. Those case numbers and death numbers that you read uh, today, eighteen more than eighteen thousand seven hundred and forty deaths in Pennsylvania. Right. Staggering. Those numbers would be a lot lower, both in Pennsylvania and across the country. I am certain if the president way back in March, if not before that, was very clear with the American people, if he told the truth, like he told the truth to Bob Woodward uh, when he thought no one was listening right. about the severity of the, the virus, uh, the, the, the death and destruction that would result unless we could, we could uh, somehow tackle it. If he told the truth, if he modeled good behavior, if he didn't divide the country, even on masks, um, we would be in a different place now. We wouldn't have this political divide on public health and on masks and the rest. So his, his ability to uh, demonize and divide and frankly distract uh, away from the, the priority of having the nation united uh, to, to defeat the virus, uh, not only led to more deaths and more cases, but actually made the economic trauma worse. As long as the, the pandemic uh, was extended, uh, then the economic trauma was gonna continue. So a lot of people were hurt uh, by his failure to lead and his obsession with 
division mm-hmm. rather than unity and, and consensus. If, if we can go back to the earlier period of the pandemic, March particularly and in April, um, first of all, I'd like to just know a little bit about your own experience, you know, becoming aware of this pandemic and when you kind of realized the magnitude of it. And, and I want to ask that because it did seem there was a time there when there was, it's kind of ironic, there was a unity. We were all separate. We were all in our homes, those who could be. Um, but there was a, a national unity of purpose in places around the country. Um, and that dissolved pretty quickly. And so I'd like to sort of take you back to that earlier part of the pandemic. What were your thoughts at that time earlier on? And were you surprised that that unity kind of dissolved as quickly as it did as we went into the summer? Yeah, again, I think it, it starts with the president. Um, when you have a national pandemic that is raging around the world, beginning to rage around the world and affecting your own country, there, there's the 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 leadership, the uh, uh, the the primacy of the presidency becomes uh, becomes indispensable to to uh, to success or the ability to somehow manage or mitigate the impact of the the virus and the disease. Um, so any consensus that uh, uh, dissolved that dissolution was was led by a president who just refused to embrace uh, the truth and and literally to lie about it over and over and over again uh which i guess was a precursor to his lies about the election right. but um but you're right at the beginning there was a a a, um, a much greater consensus about what we had to do together that by staying home we could all do our part but um, there's only so much you can do uh, as as a uh, a governmental leader or a business leader or a leader mm-hmm. in a community, if the person at the top is not um, is not only uh, giving contrary messages, right. uh, on many days he was just not telling the truth, but uh, but also kind of inconsistent messages. Uh, even the the public health uh, messages were were undermined by his failure either to enunciate them or is um, sometimes right on the same stage where one of the uh, scientists or professionals would say something and he would try to right. reinterpret it or, or, or say it a different way so to make it sound not so bad. He, his obsession with the stock market uh, was, should, have been the, should have been an obsession with uh, uh, tackling this virus. Aside from the, and I agree with you, it must start there with, with the president, Aside from that, what were the other things that happened in the federal response that you were keeping an eye on there in the spring that we can learn from as we go into this second year of the pandemic? We're going to have to change the way that we react to disasters in the United States, whether or not the president is a disinformation artist, which that one is. There's no question that we've got to to uh, reassess uh, the public health infrastructure of the country and uh, learn from this pandemic to better prepare for the next. Uh, certainly with the, the pandemic all hazards legislation that's been in place over uh, now more than more than two decades or about two decades, we had some, some infrastructure in place, but not nearly enough. Mm-hmm. And it, I, I think we have to reassess, for example, the whole question of uh, uh, personal protective equipment, even the simplest or, or most rudimentary parts of that. 
if the United States of America, the most powerful, uh, the most powerful country in the history of the world, the strongest economy in the world, the strongest production capacity of any other country, if we can't produce and then store uh, enough uh, personal protective equipment, gowns, masks, gloves, uh, and then the, the more sophisticated uh, ventilators or respirators, if we can't uh, have that production scaled up almost what I would argue is we need a whole new manufacturing sector to produce all that and then to store them in, in uh, temperature controlled or climate controlled conditions so they can be utilized not just five years from now, but uh, many years from now. If we can't do all that, then we're not who we say we are. So I think that was a, th that was a failure that uh, predated even the, this president. Um, and so I think there's, there's also a, has to be a focus on local, even even at the county level, uh, public health infrastructure. We just failed to invest in counties and states and even at the federal government level uh, in the kind of infrastructure we're going to need. So a lot of lessons to learn. I think that's that's to be reflected, I hope, in future collaboration and legislation. Well, let me pick up on on one issue that I know you've been very active on, and it's been startling, I think, to everyone that um, more than 40% of the deaths from the pandemic have been in long-term care, elder care facilities. You co-sponsored a bill um, with Senator Patrick Toomey uh, in November. I'm just going to read just a, a sentence from the press release there, but in in proposing, you said we have an imperative to help nursing home residents and workers amid the public health crisis. And we must also improve care quality in nursing facilities, especially those that have a consistent pattern of failing safety and care standards. Why were nursing homes so vulnerable, Senator? Well, I think in some ways we have to look at this from two vantage points. One, uh, what would be the circumstance in long-term care facilities absent the pandemic? Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, that's not a very, uh, that's not a very positive picture because we have not invested enough, nor have we held uh, nursing homes and long-term care facilities accountable enough, um, e even absent the pandemic. So that's a whole other question. And Senator Toomey and I were trying to address that question in our legislation. But when you, when you look at long-term care from the perspective of what went wrong in, in the pandemic, starting basically in the month of March, a couple things went wrong, and this affected poor, poor performing facilities, but it also affected facilities that have never had a problem with their performance, have never been on the, the, uh, the list where, where they, they get special scrutiny. Even, even uh, high, high quality facilities were having trouble. And the problem was just the fundamentals, not enough personal protective equipment, not enough capacity to do testing. And the, it's a subset really of uh, it's not just a subset of the larger tragedy of the pandemic, but it's a subset of the the failure to have a, a national testing strategy and to have enough testing capability in long-term care facilities. So what I suggested early on and put it into legislative form 
was to uh, dedicate new dollars for all of those priorities, testing, PPE, uh, dollars for surge capacities, because, because sometimes it, you, what a nursing home needs in the midst of a, an outbreak is they need personnel. They need more docs or nurses or uh, certified nurses assistants and others. They also need help with this, this so-called uh, cohorting where, where you separate the nursing home resident with COVID-19 from, from those that don't have it. And of course, the, 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 the kind of the, uh, the concomitant problem here was you had uh, staff who, uh, first of all, do work that, that is, they're poorly compensated for and, and the high turnover rate leads to poor quality care generally. But then the same staff that we haven't invested in or valued uh, in any fashion in society, mm -hmm. they were, because they're working and living in a community, coming back and forth, right. sometimes contracting the virus in the facility and bringing it out, or contracting in the community and bringing it into the facility. So uh, all of these issues resulted in uh, uh, reports uh, that uh, I worked on with a, a few other senators. For example, I'm looking at one here. Mm -hmm. This was uh, this was a report from September, and it, just look at the top of it: the cost of inaction, 11 deaths an hour. This was just over like a two-month period in the summer yeah. of 2020. Uh, 11 deaths in nursing homes an hour, and as you mentioned, Doctor, the the uh, uh, the, the 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 high number of deaths uh, of nursing homes when you add up resident deaths and worker deaths combined. Um, they, they comprise, as you said, about 40%. So just a horrific nightmare within the larger tragedy. And um, we, I think, have to take steps even beyond the, the, the gravity of the, or, or the, the period, I should say, of the, the virus uh, to, to address long-term care because yeah. it's, um, it's still a, a, a challenge even absent uh, this terrible virus. Well, let's take this for a minute because I think, I mean, your connection there to also the long-term care facilities as sites of work for essential workers. And we've learned, I mean, many communities didn't have to learn this in America, but I think a broader swath of Americans have learned a lot about inequality this year. Yep. Lessons we should have learned a long time ago. And so it seems to me your work on aging populations and on nursing homes is also a, a leverage point into a much needed conversation in America about vulnerable populations who happen to be in this pandemic, communities of color, yep. that, and then also older Americans. And of course, it's impossible to disentangle the death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Black Lives Matter movement from, I mean, it all gets together in one really important conversation. I wonder if I could draw you out on that a little bit, on those connections. Yeah, we've, we've used a, a very innocent sounding word, disparities. It almost sound, sounds very technical. But um, I think we, we probably have a much better sense of what that word means today uh, because of the virus and, and because of the, the uh, horrific death of George Floyd and, as you mentioned, Breonna Taylor and others who, who remind us not only of the uh, not only the obvious uh, problems in policing, which have to be addressed, I think, and we have legislation to bring accountability to policing, which would be historic if we were to pass it, the Justice and Policing Act, 
but but that's not enough. You could pass, if that bill passed tomorrow morning, you you would not uh, you would not be solving the the under some of the underlying problems that result from these disparities. So another word to talk another way to talk about disparities is injustices or a series of injustices. Mm -hmm. The injustice in housing, the injustice in in healthcare access for communities of color, the injustice in education, the injustice even in the environment. Climate change isn't about some far off problem with the environment. Climate change uh, directly affects communities of color right now uh, adversely. So, so when you go down the list of those disparities or injustices uh, in light of this uh, terrible pandemic, uh, I think the, the, the resolution of some of those problems or the, the, the remedy for some of those disparities be, becomes ever more urgent. We have a lot of work to do to make sure that we uh, lift people up beyond where they were before the pandemic. That's why I think it was so appealing when Joe Biden said, build back better. He didn't just say, build back to where we were. He said better, and better means we have to uh, lift people up. And even in the context of healthcare and long-term care in the pandemic, we have to we have to make sure that as part of an economic strategy that caregiving is is lifted up and valued. We can't say we really care about seniors, uh, no matter where they are in America, if the people that are providing most of the care, the direct care workers, taking care of seniors, taking care of people with disabilities, taking care of children, if they're paid twelve dollars an hour or paid uh, $10 an hour, or $13 an hour. We have to lift up these professions and accord them the respect that not only they deserve, but accord them the, the respect that we say we place with regard to the value we claim to place mm. on the lives of vulnerable Americans, whether they're in communities of color or whether they're seniors or kids or, or people with disabilities. I think it's very powerfully said. Thank you for that. And, and it shows us also that, um, as we were talking earlier about the failure of leadership, it's a much bigger story. And I don't think we can let ourselves off the hook by saying, well, we're done with President Trump, so that's all over now, because these injustices, and I'm glad you used that word, are longstanding and they're structural in America. No question it, about it. I see this work you're doing with nursing homes as a way to directly confront that pretty, pretty aggressively. What's the forecast for that bill? Well, I think the fact that Senator Toomey uh, is supportive is significant because, as you know, in the Senate, getting a bipartisan uh, dance partner, otherwise known as a co-sponsor, can be um, rather elusive. <laughs> it's, it's difficult. So I think we, we, we should be able to pass it. Um, but I don't think that will be enough in this space. We have to do more. Part of this is dollars, and that's where you have real trouble getting consensus. Uh, but there are ways that we can improve care and improve the, the uh, improve long-term care by making sure that if we're going to have a program as we do now, it's now called the Special Focus Facility Program, which focuses on the, the nursing homes. We have about a little more than 15,000 nationwide. There's about 3% of them that have consistently have problems or poor performers. Uh, but but the, the, the program to provide special focus on that 3%, and I think it's important to emphasize it's 3%, it's not 90 or 80, but of the 3%, uh, it's a couple hundred facilities, but we've had a program that was only able to cover a, a portion of the 
of the of the five or six hundred that are usually on the list. So this this would make sure that the the uh, resources are there to to pay attention to all five hundred and not you know, just uh, about a hundred of the five hundred. But we also have to help these uh, long term care facilities uh, with uh, basic you know the the basic costs of uh, providing quality mm -hmm. care. We can't just throw the book at them and say you're you're uh, you're not doing a good job you're providing poor care we have to in my judgment uh, provide uh, more more support and again it's 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 a it's an obligation i think that we have and we we say that we care about uh, seniors we say how much we learn from them these are people that fought our wars they're work, right. they worked in our factories uh, they they built the greatest middle class we've ever known They've brought so much love and value to our lives. The least that we can do is to say, no matter who you are, when you reach um, a certain age and you need skilled care in a nursing home or a long-term care facility, uh, we're going to provide that. The additional challenge here is we don't have enough opportunities for them to get home and community-based care. If most seniors, I think even, even non-seniors, had a choice between getting care in a in a residential facility of some kind or at home, I think most would prefer at home. We haven't made that that right. transition yet, mostly because the dollars haven't been there right. uh, to provide home and community-based services for both for seniors and people with disabilities. We've got about 800,000 Americans uh, on a waiting list to get those kinds of services. So that's mm -hmm. a whole other legislative well initiative. Well, we're almost up on time. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you one more question from the historian's point of view here. You've been in public life um, through a really disastrous era in American history. September 11, Hurricane Katrina. You've been in the Senate through a number of uh, hurricanes and not to mention, as you mentioned earlier, climate change, a slow disaster of climate change. And now this pandemic I don't think you can answer this too briefly, but I might ask you for a first pass at history here. How do you see this pandemic in that broader perspective of these disastrous times it lived in? This was a year of history and you, you're in the Senate in this time. I mean, you're part of that history. Yeah, I was just watching um, recently on CNN that uh, documentary about the 1918 pandemic and uh, there were fights then about masks. There were fights then about how much public health, uh, how many public health measures should we fully embrace? So. To, to a large extent, we didn't learn enough in the 100 years. Uh, I sure hope that uh, when the history of this pandemic is, is fully chronicled, that uh, we, we learn it well and, and can implement the, the lessons that uh, should be learned. But there's no question that public health has to guide your decisions. And to a certain extent, that was the case here. But we didn't, as a people, as a nation, didn't didn't follow public health uh, guidance closely enough. Uh, and we didn't have the, did, didn't invest the dollars and, and devote the time to developing that public health infrastructure that would, that would provide us uh, uh, with a better, we'd be more fortified against a pandemic. It would also help even now with the advent of the vaccine. I think some of that public health infrastructure would be, um, readily available or, mm -hmm. or or translatable maybe is the right word to to the distribution of the vaccine so there's a lot to a lot to learn but uh, 
I'm I'm just mindful that we lost a lot of Americans. Yeah. And I think unnecessarily because of some of the the failures at, at uh, the federal level and because of some of the the politicization of, of some of these issues. So I hope that uh, if we're confronting a pandemic again, God help us, I hope it's not for decades from now yeah. that we will have learned something. Senator Bob Casey, thanks so much for your leadership uh, through a difficult year and thanks for making time to talk about it today on COVID calls, really appreciate it. And good luck in the, in the, next, in the next Congress, we need you there. Thanks, Doctor. Great pleasure to have uh, Senator Bob Casey on COVID calls today. And um, going to now read uh, obituaries of a few uh, Pennsylvania residents. Just gonna turn to that now. The numbers, as I read earlier at the top of the program before I talked to Senator Casey were staggering. We're still right around that uh, 4,000 a day mark. And let me, um, Put some human perspective to that for our conversation. Was really impressed, uh, I should just say, speaking with Senator Casey, um, who I know likes to get very much uh, into the legislative weeds on issues like public health and on uh, aging. And I'm impressed um, that he was eager to go into so much detail on the nursing home reform because one has to take into account that if we had already brought what he called a justice mindset to not only people who are receiving care, but the caregivers, um, this pandemic would have looked very different. Let me turn now to obituaries. Headline is the coroner, Scranton, Pennsylvania, firefighter died from COVID-19 pulmonary embolisms. This was published December 31st, 2020 by Jim Lockwood in the Times Tribune, Scranton. The death of a 28-year-old Scranton firefighter was caused by multiple pulmonary embolisms from COVID-19. Lackawanna County Coroner Tim Rowland announced December 30th. Stephen Sunday, who died December 29th, previously tested positive for the COVID-19 coronavirus and was in quarantine at home when he became critically ill and was hospitalized, Rowland said. A pulmonary embolism is a blockage in one of the pulmonary arteries in the lungs. A firefighter since January of 2020, Sunday died at Geisinger Community Medical Center. As of December 16th, the city said 14 firefighters had tested positive for COVID-19 and another six were in quarantine, bringing the number of personnel out to 20 in a department with 135 firefighters. We're starting to see several of those members return to work, Fire Chief John Judge said. In total, 32 fire, police, and public works employees were off work because of positive COVID-19 tests as of December 16th. Updated information on the number of city employees who have tested positive and were out of quarantine was not immediately available. Sunday is the only city employee to have died from COVID-19, City Business Administrator Carl Dealey confirmed. Police officers and firefighters began receiving COVID-19 vaccines recently, he added. 
Remembered by friends and colleagues for his enthusiasm and work ethic, Sunday followed in the footsteps of his maternal grandfather, John P. Lawless, in becoming a city firefighter. A 2010 graduate of West Scranton High School, Sunday was a standout baseball catcher and the first sophomore inducted into the 1,000-pound weightlifting club. He also played for the West Side American Legion baseball team and hit a home run at Doubleday Hall of Fame Field in Cooperstown, New York. Sunday earned an associate's degree in physical education from the Sullivan County Community College in New York and played on 2011 conference title baseball team. He was awarded the 2012 Chancellor's Scholar-Athlete Award, one of two given throughout New York State annually and the first at SCCC. An avid Red Sox fan, Sunday then attended St. Thomas Aquinas College in New York where he played on two championship teams and in the NCAA Division II College World Series. After college, he played in the Independent Frontier Baseball League in Michigan and Kentucky. Sunday then became an emergency medical technician with common Wealth Health Emergency Medical Services and was a certified deep water scuba diver. A funeral procession led by the Scranton Fire Department traveled to Cathedral Cemetery for internment. Active and retired city firefighters marched in formation to the cemetery. We will be properly sending off our brother, Chief Judge said. City and Fire Department requested that any outside agencies refrain from sending delegations, members, or apparatuses because of public health concerns related to COVID-19. Keeping with Pennsylvania obituaries, the headline is Abraham Emanuel Brown, 85, worked as a security guard and loved to garden. This was written by Valerie Russ and was published May 28, 2020 in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Abraham Emanuel Brown excelled at gardening. He knew how to make things grow and thrive, whether it was plants, lawns, or anything nature related, said his granddaughter, Latoya Benz. His flowers were all over his house. He had a special touch that he couldn't explain, but his food tasted better. His callaloo was known to be the sweetest, his granddaughter said. Callaloo is a dark, leafy vegetable that looks like collard greens but has a sweeter taste. People called him the callaloo man. Mr. Brown, 85, of the West Oak Lane section of the city, died May 3rd from COVID-19 at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. He grew up on a rice farm in St. Catherine, Jamaica, where he was born in 1934 the youngest of six children of Solomon and Margaret Graham Brown. Known to his family as Bram, he left school in the ninth grade to work on the farm. In 1962, he married his wife, Rosalind Mayhew Brown. In Jamaica, he worked sunup to sundown, both at his farm and as a supervisor at Linstead Market. Seeking better opportunities, Mr. Brown came to Philadelphia in 1990. He first found work as a laborer and later as a security guard. He and his wife joined the Willow Grove Seventh-day Adventist Church. He helped neighbors with their gardens and cut lawns and shoveled snow without being asked, the family said. And he loved gardening. He also loved gathering his large family of seven children together for prayers and to treat them to his legendary storytelling. He always wanted us to go above where he was in life, said daughter Elaine. He pushed us to go to school. Benz said Mr. Brown also loved dressing well. He liked things of a good quality in clothing, shoes, furniture, and good leather. Sometimes he would buy name brands and not know what they meant. He just saw their quality, she said. 
In addition to his wife, daughter, and granddaughter, Mr. Brown is survived by daughters Yvonne, Norma, and Marceline, sons Hector, Hopeton, and Dwight, eight other grandchildren, three great-grandchildren, and many other relatives. A private service was held on Wednesday, May 20th. The headline is Newcastle Couple Loses Battle Against COVID-19. Eddie and Dave Kastik died days apart following COVID-19 diagnosis. This was published April 19th, 2020. It was reported by Caitlin Sykes. Dateline is Newcastle, Pennsylvania. A Newcastle family is heartbroken after losing a couple to COVID-19. Betty and Dave Kastik were living out their dream and traveling the country by RV. It was always her dream to get an RV and travel, said Kristen Esposito, Betty's granddaughter. Esposito said the pair retired in 2019 and bought the RV in September. They hit the road immediately, stopping in Maine in October, then the Florida Keys. She said Betty always wanted to go to Mardi Gras, so the couple arrived in Louisiana in January. When they went to Mardi Gras, the coronavirus wasn't as big of a deal at that point, she said. The pair returned home on March 21st and days later became ill. On the 26th, she started getting a fever, she said. She just was kind of achy and had a fever. She didn't have a cough. Her throat didn't hurt. No other symptoms except a fever. She thought, maybe I'm just getting a virus or an infection. She wasn't too worried. The hospital told Betty to get tested for the coronavirus on the 30th of March. She woke up on the 31st very ill, she said. Her fever was over 102. Very, very achy just completely miserable. So that's when my mom took her to the hospital for the second time and they admitted her and induced her into a coma that night. On April 1st, Dave was hospitalized and placed on a ventilator. Once it hit them, it just went so fast that it just overtook their body, she said. Dave passed away on April 9th and Betty died on April 14th. Esposito said Betty didn't even know her husband had died. She was just such an amazing person, she said. She would do anything for anybody. She was just so feisty. She was such a special person. Esposito said she's not sure where her grandmother contracted the virus, but had left Mardi Gras before officials shut it down. They could have got it and just carried it, and it took a little while for her to get the symptoms, but I can't say. I wish they didn't go because that's what she wanted and she got to experience. She got to experience it with her husband, and my mom went with them. She says it's important for people to take this virus seriously because it can happen to anyone. All they're asking is for us to stay home, wear a mask, and wash our hands, she said. It's simple. And yet, when this is all over, everybody is going to go back to their normal lives. But I lost my grandma. My life will never be the same because I lost my best friend to this. I want to remind everybody that you can catch COVID calls live every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time. And I want to once again thank my guest today, Pennsylvania Senator Bob Casey, for joining me on one of my special congressional COVID calls. And we're going to continue with that tomorrow. I have House Representative Jake Oshenkloss, representative of the Massachusetts 4th District tomorrow. And he was just uh, recently sworn in first-term member of the House of Representatives from Massachusetts. We'll be really looking forward to speaking 
with him. Thank you all for joining me today. Stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow, five o'clock.